have a kind of a, I think an interesting message to share. I'm going to ask you to make a lot of the application for what I'm going to say in your own lives. Um, uh, but uh, I think that, that, that there's a real important message as we launch this series today on indestructible relationships based on our focus on Colossians in the New Testament, which I'm going to get to in a few minutes. But first of all, I want to talk a little bit about the guy who carried the letter from Paul to Colossae, to the Colossians. And I'm going to begin by reading another letter that he carried in its entirety called Philemon. I'm going to read an entire book of the Bible today, right now, uh, which maybe I've never done before, but uh, never fear, it's only 330 words long in the original language. So here's the day. Here's the deal. So this is a letter that Paul wrote in the mid-A.D. 50s to Philemon, a member of the church in the region of Colossae and Laodicea, sister cities in western Asia Minor, which is in present-day Turkey. So Philemon was a wealthy landowner who had evidently heard Paul preach in Ephesus when there was a massive revival in Ephesus, and evidently Philemon uh, confessed his faith in Jesus there. Ephesus is, is a major city situated about 50 miles from Colossae and its sister city, Laodicea. So um, Philemon became a believer uh, as a result of Paul's ministry and as was common in the first century uh, in that era, which I'll speak about at some length, Philemon had slaves. Kind of difficult for us to comprehend today, but nonetheless, uh, this is the background of this letter. Philemon had slaves. Now, one of his slaves, a young man named Onesimus, stole some money from Philemon and ran away, uh, evidently to lose himself in the metropolis of Ephesus. But while he was there, he visited Paul, who was in prison in Ephesus. He heard the good news about Jesus from Paul. He confessed his faith in Jesus, became a follower of Jesus, and a partner in Paul's ministry while Paul was in Ephesus. Paul did a lot of amazing things from jail in Ephesus. And um, Paul eventually wrote letters to the, Coloss to the Colossian church, which is called Colossians, and a letter to Philemon, this wealthy owner of slaves who had become a believer in Jesus. And he had Onesimus, the runaway slave, carry these letters back to the church in Colossae and the church uh, and to, the, to Philemon. So I'm going to read this letter. It's a master class in all kinds of things. It's amazing. It's one of the most uh, uh, profound, world-changing pieces of literature ever written. But more importantly, of course, it is the inspired Word of God with a message that can impact our lives today. Are you ready? So let's read the entire letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. Timothy is there with him, partnering in writing this letter just as he did the letter to the Colossians. To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you. Remember, part of the church in the region is meeting in Philemon's home. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I always thank my God as I remember in you in my prayers because I hear about your love for all his holy people and your faith in the Lord Jesus. Typical Paul, he's about to nail Philemon, but he starts by finding good things to say. 
I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Now here comes Paul, typical Paul. Therefore, he's going to nail him now. Although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do. Who's taking this letter to Philemon? Onesimus, the runaway slave, who's now become a believer. Therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than Paul, an old man and now also a prisoner of Christ Jesus, that I appeal to you for my son Onesimus who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and me. Onesimus means useful. That's what he was named by his parents. But he evidently didn't do a very good job for Philemon, for Philemon, and Philemon had called him useless, hopefully before Christ. But nonetheless, he now says, because this guy you think is useless has now confessed his faith in Jesus, he now is going to be useful to you in a way beyond anything you ever imagined. He said, I am sending him who is my very heart back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent so that any favor you do would not seem forced but would be voluntary. He's appealing to Philemon's heart that now is full of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps the reason he, Onesimus, the slave, was separated from you for a little while so, was so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me, but even dear to you, both as a fellow man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he's done anything wrong or owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back, not to mention that you owe me your very self. I do. It's amazing, isn't it? I do wish, brother, that I may have some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I ask. Now, he's not demanded anything that would be called a requirement to obedience, but now he brings the word obedience in. What's he telling him? Release Onesimus from slavery. Treat him as your brother in Christ. And I'm confident, he says, you'll do even more than I ask. Now notice, he's not coming in here guns blazing. Because that's not usually how the gospel works. He's coming in here appealing to a brother who's in error. And he's calling him from his own heart to do the thing that's obviously the right thing and then he says, confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing you do even more than ask. And one more thing, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored to you and answer to your prayers. Hint, Philemon, I'm going to come and see how you responded to this letter. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends you greetings. Epaphras is the guy who started the church in Colossians who's now in prison with Paul in Ephesus for preaching the gospel and threatening all the power structures and so on. And so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. It's almost like I could just finish there and say, that was marvelous, wasn't it? Let's receive communion. But let me dig in a little bit. Um, so let's talk about slavery, just what you wanted to talk about today in the Roman Empire in the first century. 
uh, a difficult subject to talk about. But let's just talk about it because it's, it's actually, there's there, several times in the New Testament this subject is mentioned. So first of all, slavery, first of all, slavery in any form is ungodly and terrible beyond comprehension. Okay, let's state the obvious. Then let me say that slavery in the first century was not race-based. Slaves could come from any ethnic group. When we think of slavery in recent history, we think about race-based slavery. That's not what slavery was in the first century. It's still completely and absolutely wrong, but that's not what it was. Slaves could come from any ethnic group. Some people actually sold themselves into slavery to avoid destitution. Others were forced into slavery as a result of being captured in war. Others were born into slavery. In major urban cities, up to one-third of the population would probably be enslaved peoples. Uh, in many cases, slaves enjoy, actually enjoyed good living conditions and could even attain prominence if they played a key role in a distinguished household. And many, if not most, slaves were not enslaved for life. That's not what slavery looked like in the first century. They could accrue enough money to buy themselves out, or they could expect to be manumitted by uh, their master after 10 or 15 years of service. But it's important to know that slavery not only was wrong in that form, but that many slaves did not experience slavery in the way that I just described, which is a little bit more how you'd think of an employee and an employer. But many slaves were abused and exploited in all kinds of ways, forced into harsh labor, uh, uh, far too often into prostitution, and so on. Slavery was part of the social system in the first century. There is no historical record that I'm aware of, and I've studied this at some length to, to be able to speak to it with some base of knowledge. There's no historical record that we have of anyone in any position of power giving any thought to the idea of abolishing the institution of slavery until Jesus and what he taught and how particularly Paul conveyed the teachings of Jesus in a way that influenced the entire Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul teaching Jesus and, and the, 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 the way Jesus taught us to live lit the match that would eventually start the fire that would burn the house of slavery down. We'll come back to that in a little bit. Paul taught. The first prominent voice that we have speaking about slavery in this kind, this kind of language. Paul taught in a famous passage, for instance, in Galatians 3. He said, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. You have to understand how radical that was in the first century. For Paul to say, you are all equal before God, slave and free, and then all the other dis disparate people groups that he mentions that we've talked so much about in recent uh, weeks. And Paul also passionately condemned slave trading, 
For instance, in writing to Timothy, in, in, in what we know of as 1 Timothy, Paul said that the law is made for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, and that he mentions certain classes of sins that were happening in the world at that time, including four slave traders. He calls them lawbreakers, rebels, ungodly, sinful. There was no uh, gray area in terms of Paul saying slavery is wrong, slave traders are ungodly, slave and master are all one before Jesus Christ. Now, some view Paul's words as a radical push for the abolition of slavery. And I see that in his words, though I'll qualify that in a moment. Others read Paul's words and are disappointed because they see him ceding too much to societal norms. They see him uh, not, if you please, taking a flamethrower to the institution of slavery and not making that a major cause in his ministry. The fact is, as you read Scripture, from my perspective, his, he, there's a reason he's not called Paul the abolitionist, but Paul the apostle. And that's the fact that even though his message against slavery was heretofore unheard of and radical in its implications, he actually had bigger things on his mind than even the eradication of slavery. He knew that if people would hear the gospel of Jesus and believe in the gospel and follow the teachings of Jesus, that something infinitely good would happen in their hearts that would end up causing them to oppose everything evil in the world, including slavery. So you always see Paul keeping what he believed was the main thing the main thing. He didn't seem to get up any day taking on some, some incredibly important societal cause. Not first. He always got up every day preaching Jesus, knowing that the gospel would change people's hearts so that there would end up being a mass opposition to the evil in the world around us and to the evil in individual people's lives. So this is why he could both advocate for slaves being freed, yet at the same time let it be known that there was always something bigger going on, even than someone agitating for their personal and even obviously justifiable rights. So here's another passage from Paul on this subject. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 21, he writes, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Now again, you have to see this both sides of the coin here that Paul is playing. Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you. Although, if you can gain your freedom, do so. For the one who was a slave when called to faith in the Lord is the Lord's freed person. He says, Jesus set you free regardless your position in someone's household. Similarly, the one who was free when called is Christ's slave. Again, he's saying we're all really before Christ. In the way that matters most, we're all the same. If you were a slave when you were saved, you're set free. If you were free when you were saved, you're now a slave to Jesus. We're all in the same place. You were bought at a price. Do not become slaves to human beings. He's clearly against slavery. But he's saying, look, get free if you can. But this isn't the most important thing. 
For we're all slaves to Christ, and he can use us for his purposes regardless our immediate station in life. Paul the Apostle is always saying, keep the main thing the main thing, and these other things, terrible things that are going on in the world around us are going to be resolved because of what happens in people's hearts. So, let's... Let's look at two big ideas in Philemon. Here's the first one, and none of this is easy. It's beautiful, but it's not easy. First of all, one of the things that we learn from Philemon, and there are so many things to be learned from it, is that we are called as believers in our relationships with one another to become one with each other through Christ. So, I just want to remind you, I want to remind you that when, when, you, when you look at Paul's ministry writ large, Paul, the, the apostle who's bringing the good news of Jesus all over the world, he played a unique role, obviously, in history, including writing two-thirds of the New Testament. Paul is always very concerned with two primary things. You have to see everything else he writes in this light. He's concerned, first of all, he's concerned that the gospel will cause people to be reconciled with God. Okay? That's the first thing. The second thing he's always concerned about is that the gospel will cause us to be reconciled to each other. This is hugely important to Paul. When, 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 when you wonder, what did Paul get up every day to do? It was to preach the gospel, to change the hearts of individuals so that individuals would believe in Jesus, follow Jesus, and be reconciled to God. And then it was that the gospel would allow us to come together in a way that had never been known before in history, where people from every imaginable background could come together with faith in Jesus and love each other in spite of our differences and become one in Christ. So it's reconciliation with God and it's reconciliation with one another. So everything else you see Paul say, you have to remember that's on the forefront of his mind. That's what he's trying to get. So you have to think about that when he's, when Philemon calls all of us to supplement our, sublimate our individual rights and become one with each other through Christ. So in Philemon, I see three main characters who are asked to give up their rights in terms of their relationship with one another in light of this bigger picture of reconciliation between peoples through Christ. First of all, the person who's obviously the victim in this story, Onesimus, without question, he is the victim. He is the hero of this story. Well, Jesus is the hero of the story, but nonetheless, Paul asks, so Onesimus comes, here's the gospel, believes in Jesus, His life is transformed. He becomes a ministry partner with Paul to where Paul is now calling him his son. And Paul asks Onesimus to carry a letter back to Philemon, his master, and essentially say, hey, Philemon, we're going to pray, or pardon me, Onesimus, we're going to pray that God will move Philemon's heart to free you, but you need to be willing to submit to the larger picture regardless. You may disagree with that approach. I can understand that in light of today's world. But I want you to consider the power of this. Paul is trusting that the gospel is going to cause Philemon to do the right thing, and he wants Onesimus to be set free the right way. 
See, sometimes people approach good causes in a way that's not like Jesus would, and we burn the house down, where in fact, we could approach it in a way that changes people's hearts. So here at Philemon chapter 8, I'm sorry, verse 8, although this is what Paul writes to, to Philemon about Onesimus, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. You have to imagine Onesimus is standing there watching Philemon read this letter. It's crazy. The second, so obviously Onesimus, in a way beyond what anybody else is doing, is willingly giving up his right. Because now Philemon, even though Philemon is acting in a terribly unjust way, is his brother in Christ. And he's going to do it Paul's way, if you please. Secondly, I can imagine Paul talking Philemon into taking this, I mean Onesimus into taking this letter back. Secondly, you see Philemon. Philemon is urged to release Onesimus from slavery and treat him as a brother. Now note this. The law, the law, you know the law is not always just. And unjust laws need to be changed, right? This is an example of that. The law is unjust in this case, clearly. But the law gave Philemon the right not only to reclaim ownership of Onesimus, but to punish him even up to crucifixion. That's what Philemon's rights were under the law. But what Paul says to him is, perhaps the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was so that you might have him back, hear these words, guys, forever. No longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother, welcome him as you would welcome me. When we talk about indestructible relationships, here's part of what I want to say today and what we'll talk about in coming weeks. Many times we make decisions in the context of relationships, husbands and wives, employees and employers, people who are part of a small group where there might be conflict over some current issue or some current event, and there's plenty of reason for that in our world right now. And we'll make short-term decisions where we exercise. It's more important to us to be right. It's more important for us to prove ourselves. It's more important for us to, you know, declare our moral outrage and, and, and so on and so forth. And many times there are a lot of good reasons for all of that, but we will, we will destroy a relationship in a moment that is meant to last forever. And believers are always caused to say, are always called to say, I may give up my right for X in this moment so that the relationship that God's brought together through the death of Jesus lasts forever. And this is what this is what Philemon is called to do. Give up your rights. Do the right thing. And Paul's saying, I don't want you to do it because I'm telling you to do it. I want you to do it because your heart is moved to not only do what I'm asking you to do, but to do more than I ask. And then the third person who's giving up their rights is Paul. When Paul sent Onesimus back, he was sending a very valuable and deeply needed ministry partner and close personal friend. He said, I'm sending you, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I'm in chains for the gospel, but I did not want to do anything without your consent. Now, guys, this doesn't mean that we shouldn't advocate for our rights 
clearly, but that we should see our rights in the bigger picture and advocate for our rights in a way that always puts the gospel first, that assumes that Jesus can change people's hearts, and that approaches difficult, especially relational issues, in a way that would honor Jesus. Here's the second thing that I want to mention from Philemon, and then we're going to get to Colossians. I've got to talk fast here. It's when we do the right thing and submit to the big picture, God will very often, when we do the right thing and submit to the bigger picture, God will very often promote us beyond our wildest dreams. So, so what happens is Onesimus, when he becomes a believer, gets changed from useless back to useful. That's part of what happens is Onesimus gets reconnected to his destiny. He wasn't performing very well in the household of Philemon anyway, evidently. Paul says, now he's going to be useful to you, but he's not just going to be useful for you playing the role he was playing. He's going to be useful to you as a brother in Christ, as someone who was equal to you and with whom you will have a relationship with ever, with forever. But then he's, then you have to know this, that some 60 years after Philemon was written, an early church father named Ignatius wrote a letter to the bishop of Ephesus, and that bishop's name was Onesimus. Many scholars, probably most scholars, believe that this was most likely the Onesimus that we read about in Philemon. In other words, a runaway slave who went to Ephesus, believed the gospel, took letters back to the church in Colossae and to Philemon. Sixty years later, as an old man, he now is the bishop of Ephesus. He's following in a line of succession of illustrious bishops of Ephesus. The first bishop of Ephesus was Timothy, the person who writes this letter with Paul. The second bishop of Ephesus was John the Beloved, the disciple of Jesus, who's the only disciple not to have been martyred. The third bishop of of Ephesus is a runaway slave who becomes a believer in Jesus who risks everything to submit himself to a brother who was treating him unjustly, trusting God to change his heart. And when it's all said and done, Onesimus ends up in a position of incredible prominence and power. See, this is what happens when someone is willing to think about getting what they want by humbling themselves in a way that doesn't make any sense in the world at all. But guys, this is the Jesus way. Here's what Paul said to the Philippians. In humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God gave up his rights to act like God and made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And hear this, guys. Therefore, think about this when you're advocating for your rights and and, and being driven by your ego and standing up, you know, to declare your cause in a way that's bringing damage to relationships that are supposed to last forever. Remember this. Jesus, who was God, decided not to act like God, but to show up to save the rest of us. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. That's the Jesus way. 
It is totally against everything in our culture. It's against everything in our sinful nature. But that's the way you get promoted by God. All right. So remember that Onesimus was not just carrying this letter to Philemon, but he also was carrying the letter to the Colossians, which we've been focused on in recent weeks. Now we're going to move to a different section in Colossians that in my mind necessitated this bigger picture about Philemon. Because you get into a section in Colossians about relationships that's very controversial, and especially to people in today's world, for reasons I understand. Okay, we're going to talk here. Well, maybe I shouldn't get there yet. But when you get this bigger picture and you imagine the letter to the Colossians being delivered by Onesimus and more than likely this letter is read out loud in the home of Philemon in whom part of the church in Colossae evidently met and or the home of a woman named Nympha, who's mentioned in Colossians, who was the, who, who was evidently the single woman head of a household, were, but successful enough so that a, a part of the church could meet in her house. Imagine now Philemon and Onesimus sitting together while these words that Paul wrote to the Colossians are read that we focused on in recent weeks, Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, how do we conduct ourselves towards these people who are so different than us in so many ways? Philemon, listen to this. Onesimus, listen to this. As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body, you were called to peace. Always Paul's concern. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever I want you to be able to worship together, he says. And whatever you do, do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And now we get, get into this other set of relationships that cause people in today's world to go cross-eyed when they hear the words read. All right? you got to see it in the bigger picture. And you have to hear how radical what Paul says is to people in the first century. He says, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That's the part I'm going to focus on today. <laughs> Actually, I'm not, trust me. I know that to most of us in today's world, that sounds like fingernails on the chalkboard. But let's, let's hear this now, okay? Let's hear this in the bigger picture. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, remember now, Philemon, when you hear this, guys, Philemon is sitting here listening to this being read. Onesimus is sitting here listening to this being read. Can you get this picture? 
Part of the context is Philemon has this letter from Paul saying, release Onesimus, he's your brother. So remember that when you hear this part of this read. Paul's both acknowledging the reality of how things are structured in the society at that time, and he's planting the seed to destroy the institution of slavery, but he's also saying right now the reality is all of you are sitting together in this room and you need to be able to worship together and so on and so forth. And he says, slaves obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. He says something that's very important. Most of the time, this is implied to employees and employers because of the way slavery was manifest in the first century. But you can hear it like this. Employers, even if your boss is treating you unjustly, you show up, you work your... You show up and work really hard every day (laughs) because you do it as unto the Lord. And when you do it to the Lord, regardless how unjust the boss is, you're getting a reward that's beyond your paycheck at the end of the week. And by the way, when you act like that, he says, God ends up showing up and promoting you in ways that's going to blow your boss's mind. Because your boss is not the boss, ultimately. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for the wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Then, this is the kind of thing that's never been said before. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Here's Philemon sitting there. He has this letter. He knows he's supposed to release Onesimus. What is he hearing in that moment? Paul's saying, hint, 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 hint. Do the right thing. So you have to see the relationships mentioned here, husband and wife, parents and children, master and slave, and the bigger picture of Colossians and Philemon. Paul is not promoting some patriarchal system. He is blowing the minds of people who live in the first century. Here's why. He's promoting a radical new idea of oneness in Christ, regardless one's station in the society of that time, and a mutual submission to one another that always puts the greater responsibility to do the right thing on the person in the position of power. What Paul is saying that's never been said before is he's speaking to the person in power and saying, you exercise the power that you have in the structure of society today in a way that serves the person that you're in relationship with. Now, I know that that in today's world, people understandably freak out when some of these relationship instructions are given by Paul. I get it. You have to remember, however, that to the people this is written, that this, that, that oppressed people, traditionally oppressed people, women, for instance, are being offered something that's never been offered before. They're being offered being in a relationship set where traditionally the husband is dominant, but now the husband is being called to actually have a greater responsibility toward his wife than she has towards him because he's being called to love her. And to get the bigger picture, you have to look at what Paul says about this in Ephesians. When he says in Ephesians 5.21, he starts this section about husbands and wives by saying, submit to one another out of reference for Christ. And then he says, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 
And then he says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. See, here's what you have to hear. You have to hear, first of all, as hard as it is for us to understand today, in Scripture, submission is not a bad word. Submission is a beautiful word when you understand it correctly. It's where someone says, I understand that I am willing to see Jesus as Lord over all. I am not the Lord of my own life. And I am willing to come under other people in a way that serves them and not just me. But you have to see here that Paul is calling on the man in this relationship to have the greater responsibility. So what does he say? What everybody wants to focus on is the verse that says, wives, submit to your husbands. And, 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 and a good husband, by the way, will never quote that verse to his wife because it has because it has to be understood in context it start the sandwich is you know the, the the bread is submit to one another out of reverence for Christ the other piece of bread down here is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and died for it and then in the middle there's wives submit to your husband it's all true, but it all has to be understood in a loving, mutual submission. In Paul's theology, the husband is to be the servant leader in the home, which in, 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 in Paul's theology means he has the greater responsibility to make sure that his wife is loved and cherished and cared for. And when you see it properly, it's a, it's a beautiful thing and it's difficult for a husband. Husband, your responsibility is to live so self-sacrificially that you're getting up every day and you're dying for your wife. Doesn't sound very patriarchal to me. Where was I? And then, you know, it's easy. Parents and children, everybody will say yay to this. Children, obey your parents. But see, Paul never stops there. Christian, did you hear that? <laughs> Children, obey your parents. Children in the minority. Um, I'm kidding uh, when I tease Christian about that. But he turns around and he puts a greater responsibility on the leader again. Father, do not provoke your children to anger, but lead them in a way that will encourage them. Again, first century, this is like, what? And then... Masters and slaves, slaves in your present status, work as if you're working for God. Remember there's something bigger going on. And masters, hint, hint, Philemon, do the right thing because you're going to have to answer to God. All of this has to be understood in this bigger picture of what we've just read in Colossians where we offer these virtues of unity. Three themes stand out to me. One of them is the theme of love. If you look at Colossians 3, that leads into this thing about how we're supposed to practice this mutual submission. First of all, it's love. Love in the New Testament is not a feeling of affection. Love is a rugged commitment to another person that lasts through thick and thin. If you're married to someone, feelings of affection will come and go. I hate to tell you that that's the reality of it. That's the reality of it. Sometimes you feel the warm and fuzzies, and sometimes you feel whatever the opposite of that is. <laughs> love is not how you feel. Love is what you do. 
And, and so this is true in marriage, and it's true in our relationships with one another in the church. Secondly, he says, forgive other people just as Christ forgave you. To forgive in this context means to be gracious to another person. You don't, you're not in relationship with another person in Christ and treat them lovingly because they deserve it. We didn't deserve the grace of God. We received the grace of God because he decided to give it to us. And then he says, let peace be the umpire that makes all the decisions in your relationship conflicts. I wish I had time to get more into that, but I don't. I'll close with two takeaways from today's message. And I'm four minutes longer than I was in the first service. God bless everybody who's in. The longer I preach, the more I say. I don't know. Two, day, two takeaways from today's message. The first is the gospel changes people's hearts. So, again, Paul's message to Philemon and to husbands and wives and to parents and children was that now that you've believed in Jesus, I expect that you'll do the right thing. He didn't yell and scream and demand. He preached Jesus and expected that Jesus would change the hearts of people who followed him. Guys, part of my methodology here as a pastor over the years has been that I don't get up every week and speak to what happened that week in our country. Now, every once in a while, I will, and I'll tell you that I'm going to do it. And I spent a couple weeks, a couple weeks ago, leading up to the election. You notice I've ignored the election today. Here's why. First of all, I don't want to talk about it. But, he, but here's the other thing. If I can lead, if I can help lead us to Jesus, Jesus will help our hearts be right about whatever's going on in the world and help our hearts be right towards one another. So, some people... I hear from folks, I get emails about this, and I love you. Thank you for sending me emails. And be, people are nice when they send them. But you want me to get up and you want me to talk about whatever terrible thing happened this week in this country. There's always something to talk about like that. But I've decided to get up week after week and talk about Jesus and talk about Jesus and talk about Jesus and talk about Jesus. Because if people will follow Jesus... O over time, good will overcome all the evil in this world. And then you have to remember that the gospel is self-corrective. So when something gets off base in a person or in the church, if they'll come back to Jesus, Jesus will over time fix it. Some people wish that Paul would have taken a flamethrower to the institution of slavery. I, 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 it makes sense that you, you wish he'd got, gotten up every day and just said, I'm going to destroy slavery. But he got up every day preaching the gospel. But what he did is he, he lit the match that started the fire that ended up bringing down slavery. Ultimately, in, in recent history, it was Christians who destroyed the institution of slavery. You study how slavery was destroyed. You study how civil rights have been progressed in this country. It's Christians, it's believers in Jesus who are practicing the gospel and, and leading change in a Christ-honoring way that ended up bringing it all down. See, what happens is the gospel a lot of times See, the, the gospel a lot of times isn't a flamethrower. It's a, scriptures describe, scripture describes the gospel as a seed planted in our hearts. It's a seed planted in our hearts. Uh, uh, Mark chapter 4 says that, that, that the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed in the garden. It gets planted, but over time it grows to become the largest seed in the garden. What happens is you plant the seed of the gospel, and the gospel will work in people's lives, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, and gooder and gooder and gooder and gooder, and the batter and batter and batter and batter gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. 
If the gospel is allowed to grow, it fixes all kind of things, even errors in the church at large, and there's plenty of that, even errors in this church, and I'm sure we're far from perfect. If if the focus will be on Jesus, the gospel will continue to grow until the gospel and all the good it brings becomes the biggest thing, and it defeats all the junk in this world. And then finally, we have to say that the gospel changes my heart. So it's one thing for us to read the story of Philemon, and we're rooting for the gospel to change Philemon's heart, and we're rooting for Philemon to do the right thing and let Onesimus go and all that stuff. But what we really need to do when we're reading this is we need to be praying that the gospel will work in our heart, that we'll think about people we're treating unjustly, and that the gospel will bring us to repentance and cause us to say, I'm not going to treat that person anymore. We think about people that we're holding in bondage by our unforgiveness, perhaps, and we're saying, no, the gospel needs to change me so that I can come to a place of forgiveness. We're being ungracious towards people we disagree with in some way. And we need to say, I want the gospel to work in me so that I may still disagree, but I'm going to disagree graciously because that's the way Jesus would disagree with someone. We all need the gospel to work in our hearts and change us.